Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Tony Evans of the Evening Standard and Seb Stafford-Bloor, editor of TIFO Football. The international break. Time to draw breath. We'll get into England issues later, but it's the perfect time to look at the balance of power in the domestic game. Liverpool lead the Premier League by two points, but the quadruple is still on for Manchester City. Who's in best shape, Tony? Well, I think City, clearly. I mean, the next uh, round of games after the international break, City go to Fulham and Liverpool play Tottenham at home. And, and clearly, uh, Liverpool made hard work at Fulham, but... They got the results. I can't see City struggling at all with them. But Tottenham, who've had a really bad month, have had a break, time to regroup, and they're going to come to Anfield desperate to get something there, and, and they need it. So, I'd say uh, City, definitely. However, you know, you, you, you when you're top of the league, coming to the end of March, and um, you've got the points in the bag, you'd rather have that than the game in hand. Yeah. If you look at those last seven fixtures, Seb, Liverpool only dropped one point in the corresponding fixtures. And now the pressure points, Chelsea maybe. Yeah. Wolves last game of the season. Yeah, definitely. How do you see them faring? I think they'll be okay. I mean the one thing I'd add in, Mike, is that um obviously City have got that double header in the Champions League against Spurs. I expect them to come through that. But typically and traditionally those those European games featuring domestic sides, they're a bit of a war. So a bit attritional. They've got Spurs in between that as well. I think it's three games in ten days. So we'll see. I mean, um, see how City come out of that. See which players come out of that as well. I mean, I still really like Liverpool. I mean, I, City deserves to be considered slight favourites, but people are being very negative about Liverpool for no reason. They look, uh, they're looking very, very good shape. I won't ask Tony this question, <laughs> but if you look at, you know, I, I'm I'm nonplussed by the sort of perception that people don't want Liverpool to win the league. Yeah. Mike, I, you know what? The tribalism is so thick nowadays, sort of viscous thick rather than stupid thick. Um, I think it's just uh, something to rage against. I mean, I try my best to kind of tune a lot of this stuff out, but I think um, given what City are and given what in the abstract they represent to some people, I think it's also important for the league uh, to have a strong Liverpool and I think it would be, make a really nice, refreshing change. They're not, they're not a pauper club by any stretch of the imagination, but I think for the sake of difference and for the sake of mutual interest, I think it's important that other clubs at least contend in, in title races. I don't really have a, a horse in that race, really, but um, I, don't, uh, I don't really understand that. I, don't, uh... I, I, I think people have 
got short memories, really. And, you know, we're in a different age of social media and all that. But when Manchester United went through their long title drought, you know, the 26 years, and they were, they were vying to win, uh, you know, the league, like, the, the clamour, the press was, was very similar. And whenever a big club has gone a long time without winning something, it's going to be like that. And the reaction from opposing fans was very similar as well. It's going to happen. If we go another, what, decade without Arsenal winning the league and Arsenal suddenly yeah. putting a challenge, the same thing will happen. So I, I think there is an added level of anti scousness which just exists in this country anyway, you know, but which we, we expect. But I think most of it's just the fact that when a big club is on the verge of some sort of success after a long drought, then there's going to be massive publicity and people are going to respond negatively to that publicity. Mm. Obviously, it's a club you know exceedingly well. Is it a more mature club these days in terms of we don't see them or don't expect them to sell either through the unfulfilled ambition of a couple of players or more money elsewhere, you know, Suarez, Sterling, Coutinho. Is the club a much more rounded club now? Well, yeah, and I think the most important thing, they've got the best manager they can get. So he's in place, and I think that makes a huge difference. The way it's run, there are still uh, dysfunctions there that make it um, difficult in some areas. But, yeah, get, getting a proper manager in and having a proper strategy going forward it helps an awful lot. When you, know, when, you look at, um, when you look at how badly the whole Sterling mess was handled... You know, they've come a long way since then. As I say, that's a lot to do with the manager. Mm, it's interesting, you know, listening to Klopp very recently, talking about we're only in the early stages of this project. Yeah. He's a long-term manager in a short-term business, isn't he? Yeah, he's a dynastic manager. He's, uh, he's one of the kind of the neophytes that believes in the project. I know people sneer at that word, but that's the sense that you get from him, that he kind of... I think it's reflected also in, in Liverpool's transfer activity last summer, with the goalkeeper accepted, you brought in two midfielders for a lot of money who have been introduced gently throughout the season. And they, they seem to me like, especially Cater, they seem to me to be signings aimed at five-year periods. So you bring him in, you don't dump him in your midfield and say, right, well, we're going we're gonna to hang our hat on whether you swim or, or not in this division. We're going to see what you do over three years, four years. And obviously that's tied to Klopp. And I think it's refreshing. I mean, this is, um, this is also an age of Marco Silva's where you, you see people that kind of jump from profession to profession to profession and they don't seem to leave much there. I mean, maybe maybe in three years' time we're still talking about Marcus Silva, the Everton manager, maybe. Mm. But at the moment it's like you're, you're, you're in employment to seek employment elsewhere. And I think it's really refreshing. I mean, Klopp, but Pochettino too is another one who, who's altered the culture rather than just the first 11. And that's... that's that's, I think, what certainly what traditional football fans who aren't kind of enslaved to, to the primacy of the transfer market want to see. Mm. I, I think it's interesting that we're, you know, we're three and a half years into the Klopp project. I think that as great as Nach is there's still a sense that it's fresh and new. Yeah. Which is great, but it's only going so far. So, I mean, I just, um, I think reaching the point where, you know, in, when, when progression needs to stop and deliver. What lessons do you think he's learned about the nature of the club? I think he understood a lot about the club and the you know the sort of connection with the fans and the soul of the club and all that. I think he's learned that uh, how to the owners have always been enthralled to him. You know he's um, but he's he certainly learned how to work them. I think he's learned that the recruitment process 
isn't perfect. So where he has to do time to step in and say, no, this is who I want. And what he's done is he's got the ability to get them to pay big money for players he think will make a big difference. And they have, I mean, you know, Van Dijk, you know, 75 million. I mean, I, I thought 75 million was a lot for a centre-half. But, you know, worth every penny to the club. You know, um, Alisson, the same. So he's learnt that. He's learnt you can't... Basically, you can't let the number crunches in the um, with the computers to all the recruitment. Mm. And it's, they spent a lot of money last summer. We're in that inevitable phase where they're going to be linked with players. Yeah. You know, the latest one is, is Ferro. Um, Benfica defender, only 10 senior games. 21 years old, hey presto, he's an £85 million uh, transfer target. Yeah. Well, we can put that maybe to one side. Yeah. But do you expect them to, to strengthen in the summer and where, Seb? It's hard to know where, Mike. I mean, certainly within the first team. I think they need another centre-half. But I don't see... There's, there's no-one in that first eleven that needs immediate replacing. In fact, I, I, I'd hope that they'd allow the summer... Maybe, maybe bring in sort of a, a slightly different profile of player to exist underneath the first team. But you'd allow some of these newer parts to mature a little bit. Cater, uh, Fabinho, of course. Um, and also, you, you, you've got players on that side who, who, just, who are not anywhere close to their prime. Someone like Alexander-Arnold. I still think Andrew Robertson has a, has a level above where he is at the moment. Terrific player, though he is. And, you know, just allow... Liverpool seem to depend on chemistry. So surely, when that's the case, you allow, you allow as much time as possible for, for, for that to grow especially in the, sort of the, the attacking three in the midfield. Um, so I don't think there's much to do. Um, they will be linked, but that's, that's the digital game, isn't it, really? Um, but I don't, I don't expect anything like last summer. I, well, no, I think I think something needs to happen in that midfield. I mean, I'm not entirely convinced that the the business in the midfield he did last summer was good business. Cater is um, all the players rave about him in training. Mm. He's great in training. It's not coming out in the pitch, and that to me is always a bad sign. So to, you know, they used to say similar stuff about Stuart Down. And Tony, where do you think his best position is, Cater? In that, in at Liverpool rather than previously. Well, I'm I'm not entirely sure he suits a midfield three. No. I think that's one of the problems. I think mm. because he's he's not he doesn't have the ability to release as often in a three. And the thing is, he's not putting he hasn't the work rate that you need to do that sort of job. And Klopp's clearly tied to this four-three-three. Uh, Get players who suit it more. Again, Fabinho, I'm not so sure about his mobility. Great when he's on the ball. Uh, and the other thing uh, uh, that worries me, when he's on the ball, he's great. But he doesn't have that snap to the ball you need in the Premier League. Yeah, that's you know, the, the, you know, compete for the first ball, win the second ball. Mm. He's not a second ball winner. And that will hold him back. Both of them, you feel, uh, have mobility problems that the opposition can pass around them and go through them quick. So I think Klopp needs to reassess where he's got in midfield. And he's got a platoon of players, all of whom are good, but he hasn't got the right blend, and he needs to find a way of getting the right blend, and I suspect he'll need to bring someone in to get that. Mm. By common consent, they've got a favourable draw in the Champions League, Porto. Mm. There's an obvious danger in looking too far ahead. However, uh, I've got a question from one of the listeners, Sammy. Uh, with the Champions League draw already done in the brackets formula... What do you guys think will be the final? <laughs> City-Liverpool, anyone? Yeah, I, I, I would never discount Barcelona. Right. If Barcelona get past Manchester United, which I expect them to do, they're a problem just, be just because they have so many players who have been in that part of the competition so many times before. And it's one of those intangibles which is very difficult to price. But 
Anytime Leo Messi's on a pitch, I don't think I would want to bet against him. I expect Man City to get through the other part of the draw. I think, uh, I think they'll beat Spurs. I don't think they'll have a... I, I expect Juventus to get past Ajax, and I don't expect City to have any problems with, with Juventus, mm-hmm. despite you well, know, the Ronaldo factor and all that. But, uh, yeah, City, 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 Barcelona slash Liverpool. Let's put it that way. You know, it's hard not to say Barcelona, except for one thing. Liverpool always win in the new Camp. Always knock Barcelona out. So, you know, it's... Um, no, I, I think Barcelona are, are clearly um, the favourites in that side. I think Juventus would be more difficult than City perhaps think. I mean, the, the, there's a lot of there's a lot of game craft there, a lot of nows, which City don't really have. And um, I could see it being a, a Barcelona Juventus final. Really, and in that case, Messi. You know, you mentioned mm-hmm. him already. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's dwell for a second on that performance on sun- in Sunday against yeah. Betis. He's the sort of player who still manages to turn you into a 10-year-old kid, isn't he? It's fantastic. For sure. I mean, one thing I'll say about that goal is, uh, for my money, Frank Lampard scored a uh, very similar goal against Hull probably about 10 years ago now, on his wrong foot, from an identical angle. So if, if people have forgotten about that, then, uh, then go to YouTube. <laughs> yeah, he is. I, my, Barcelona are not what they were. I mean, they are not the, um, the cohesive force they once were, and they've got a few problems. They've got issues in midfield. The, the, sort of the, the third spoke on that Suarez-Messi axis is a little bit tenuous at the moment too. And, um, you know, Samuel and Titi missing from uh, the defence is a problem. But Messi, he's one of those players that sort of, he has that quality. When, whenever he gets the ball, as an opposing fan, you think he can hurt you. It scares you. So Ronaldo had that, original Ronaldo and the newer one. Thierry Henry had that as well when he was in the Premier League in his prime. Messi at a level above. Every time he touches the ball, you're afraid. And that's, a, that's a, an amazing mark of respect when you're able to say that. He's still a, a fabulous player. I saw a Manchester United fan on Twitter refer to him as uh, the little Maradona. I thought, well, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> Other supermarkets are available. Um, City, they're punishing poor teams at the moment, you know, Schalke being a case in point. And then they're struggling a little to actually get over the line in, in recent games. Is that a good or a bad thing? Well, I think, you know, title-winning teams grind out results when they're not at the best. So, in, in a sense, it's a good thing. I think it'll probably be a bad thing once you get into the Champions League quarterfinals and semis. I think Tottenham are going to be a far more difficult proposition for City than most people think. And uh, I'm, I'm not entirely sure it's a given that City are going to go through. So I, I think they're going to be have, have to be at the top of the game for that that tie. And whoever they play in the semis for, in the league, they can probably they can probably play badly and still win. You know, it's, uh, I, I can't see many teams taking much off them, but um, but certainly it's one of the things we've seen, and you know, we, we've seen from PSG, you know, we've seen from Bayern Munich. You can beat the teams in your own league. It's, it's great, it's easy, but then when you play with the big boys, you've got to turn it up a notch. And if City are not anywhere near the best, then they'll struggle in Europe again. Mm, I suppose you know, this break is going to be important. But getting players back, you know, Liverpool with Joe Gomez that we're told is going, yeah. he's going to come back after the break. Similarly with City and Kevin De Bruyne, yeah. he's absolutely key for them, isn't he? I think so. I don't think that's... I think it's a little bit too neat, but I think one of the reasons behind them being a level just below where they were last season is De Bruyne. Because they've twice tried to bring him back. The first time, too soon, and it showed. The second time it worked better, but he was unlucky again. 
I don't know. He just he's he's like a he's a Swiss Army knife for football. He, he hurts you in so many different ways that I don't know as an opposing manager how you you plan against that, how you you build your team around stopping him. And if you do, if you commit, if you overcommit to doing that, there are so many other parts of that side which hurt you too. Fullbacks and and you know players like you know forgetting David Silva and Sané and Aguero. You've also got that that, that sort of power from Carl Walker at the back, which I think is a really underrated part of what they do well, is just the ability to penetrate from deep. So they're a nightmare. If you, if you add De Bruyne in on top of that, they are, when they play well, when, when it clicks, they're almost unbeatable. Certainly, if, I mean, Tony mentioned Spurs. I mean, I, I, I want to sign up to that. I want to sign up to all of that faith. I just, that's one of the big differences is that you have, you have players in, in Tottenham side who they're good players, some of them are very good, but you know how they're going to play. You don't have the kind of the, the diverse impact that a De Bruyne brings, and that's what makes him a rare player. It's not any one attribute, it's not any one thing that he does well, it's that whole range. And you just, you don't know how he's going to, um, how he's going to disrupt a game and change it. It's very, very difficult. So if he's fit, they, are, they deserve to be a Champions League favourite, certainly. Yeah, it's interesting that Pep himself has finally come out and said, look, yeah, my time at City will be defined by whether we win the Champions League or not. Understand that? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what he was brought in for. I mean, you know, this is the centre of Abu Dhabi. Is they want to be a, a European power, a global power. They want to be up there at the top table. And if he doesn't achieve that, for all the titles he'll win, it'll be a disappointment. And, I mean, that's another plus for Liverpool. The focus of City is on... Also, the four trophies they're in is on the Champions League, and that again might have there's an awareness in the dressing room with that as well, and, and the pressure will be building there. So, I mean, I'm not I'm not so sure. Well, I think it's good that he's admitted it in public. I think that will, in some ways, lift some of the pressure, but in other ways, it'll, it turns it up a notch. Talking of pressure, when does the increasing concentration on the quadruple become really oppressive? When if they drop points, if there's a you know a, an unhelpful draw here or a kind of a um, inconvenient away goal somewhere in the Champions League, then people start to talk about it. And when they start to talk about it, players don't exist in a vacuum. They never can do, and Guardiola doesn't either. So, as soon as it becomes part of the conversation, as soon as their sort of their identity changes from this sort of uh, this irresistible force, which is going to sweep past absolutely everyone. I mean, it, I, th I thought uh, Chris Hutton's reaction to the FA Cup draw was very telling yesterday. It's like. Okay, well, we'll just. I, I know he won't. I but really it, felt for him because, me too, it, and me he too. was really honest, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, me too. And, and I, I, I really like Chris Hutton. I think yeah. he's he's um, one of the, the the best people in the game, actually, as a, a human being. But it's very telling that that is the sort of the public's reaction to them. So at the moment, City have this kind of this invulnerability. But as soon as you you know a couple of results change, there's a nervousness here or there. As soon as people talk about it, then it becomes part of the news cycle, and that's probably when the pressure comes. I'm surprised that it hasn't reached the crescendo yet. I mean, yeah. because normally, and I'm not exempting myself from this here, yeah. but the British media are slightly hysterical in the <laughs> you know in the way they, they project how the season will go. They, I mean, they did this last year in, in October. Exactly. They were talking exactly yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think it's um, it's been a very restrained reaction yeah, me too, so me too. far, yeah. um, which is the right way because you know I mean all right they've got one in the bag, but win them four trophies, oh. you know. It just doesn't happen, you know. It's uh, mm. well, not not in not in uh, England, and you know, even when United did the treble, so many things had to fall into place for them. Yeah. So many good sides had to, you know, basically surrender to them. Mm. You know, Bayern Munich. 
Arsenal in that semi final. Yeah, Arsenal yeah. in the semi, you know, it's um, Liverpool in the, in the third round yeah, of the yeah, cup. Yeah. You know, and, and there was an awful lot of, um, don't get me wrong, good sides, and they kept going at it all the time. But, you know, under normal circumstances, at least one of those games would have seen United get beaten. Mm. Good side. Are they almost too good for their own good in, in the sense that if they do win, let's say even three, people just look at this and think, we need someone else. Yeah, it's a funny one, Mike. I almost don't want to answer that just because I think a lot of this has to do with the, um, the accusations which are currently sort of city in their all three dimensions because it, it's not a football team in the truest sense at the moment. It's, mm. a, it's an enterprise. It's a... Mm. A content producer, and and also you know for, for for the record, obviously you know those um, allegations about you know, yeah, financial um, misconduct, you know they are very hotly and, and strenuously and consistently denied. Absolutely, I, I think the, the the difficulty is that people will believe what they want to believe, and we may find City are completely innocent, but the average fan who is still sort of um, who is reading the reports in the Spiegel who has their own biases. It's very easy as a fan of another club to explain away your, um, your own team's failings with, with sort of unfounded accusations or the belief that someone, the only way a rival could overcome you is by wrongdoing. It's, that's convenient for a fan, so people will choose what they want to believe. Mm. Um, yeah, at the moment, it's, it's, it's unproven. It's just conjecture. It's interesting, Tony, that you say you give Spurs more than a squeak. They've got a very long break. Is it three weeks? Yeah. Um, what would you like to see Pochettino do within those three weeks? What, what are his priorities? Well, I mean, I think getting players fit, mm-hmm. uh, putting some confidence back into them. One of the things we've seen with Tottenham uh, during the Pochettino era, and also with Liverpool, to be fair, is um, the sides have faded in the last part of the season. And it's in part, I think, due to the rigorous training mm-hmm. that they've done in the early part of the season. They've run out of steam. And, um, and in part, psychological and so what he's going to do is perhaps rest them up get them fit and get the minds right get them to believe that they can kick on in the, this part of the season where you know over the we've seen we've seen them self-destruct mm. so you know this is not the time for self-destruction this is one of the biggest tests of Pochettino's management and we'll see exactly how good he is because suddenly from from being title contenders in a matter of what three weeks they're looking over the shoulder. At the and others. out of both cups as well. Yeah, within this yeah. Case and, and, yeah. and they're looking over the shoulder of teams that have frankly been pretty poor this season. Yeah, what was the, the mood amongst Spurs fans? Was it sort of, oh, here we go again? Yeah, but it, it, that's muscle memory, Mike. It, it always <laughs> will be, I'm afraid. I hate to say it. I think there's, um, there's a couple of frustrations and they, they've kind of reached critical mass. The stadium, I know we have an, a date to move in, the stadium has annoyed a lot of people, and rightly so, because drawing to Wembley every other week has, has not been great for, for fans. Um, also, this sort of continuous... You've, you've had the, the issues with the transfer budget. So on the one hand, the club always says, right, well, <coughs> these funds are ring-fenced and uh, you know whatever happens to the stadium doesn't affect it. And then on the other, you have the, these obvious needs in the team which aren't addressed. Spurs, Tony's absolutely right. You know, this is a, a, a test of Pochettino's emotional management, but that team's got big structural issues. It needs at least two new fullbacks. They've been working without an orthodox central midfielder for quite some time. They've had to deal without Kane and without a proper, um, not just a replacement in Fernando Llorente, but a player that allows them to play in the same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all kinds of issues. And you, so you've had this drag of fatigue. You've had the footballing equivalent of having to live out of a hotel for a year and a half in bags. And you, you've just had this 
surrounding uncertainty about the manager as well. I mean, it's not so long ago. I, I know everything has changed now, but you couldn't watch a game that Tottenham were playing in without a good half an hour of it being dedicated to as and when Pochettino is going to be Manchester United manager. These things are difficult. Um, Two more defeats for Solskjaer in the starts again. Maybe, exactly that. So maybe when you recover, maybe, you know, say they, they, they go to Anfield and win or take a point, which would be a very good result. They go to City and win. And in the meantime, if Solskjaer is not returning to the form prior to Paris Saint-Germain, then that begins again. So Tottenham are battling a lot of different things, not just their own history, but that, that will always be part of it. That will always be on a, a fan's mind, of course. Uh, you know, uh, Daniel Levy has uh, you know, had a meeting with you know, the Supporters Trust in which he, he said, look, we're in the stadium, you know, we start on like, April the 3rd against Crystal Palace. The transfer budget will be remain untouched. Is Pochettino justified in asking precisely what transfer budget? Yeah, I was going to say it remains untouched last summer and then yeah, January. Yeah. I mean, how much longer is it going to remain untouched? How about touching for everything and spending it? Yeah, I mean, if I was... Pochettino is very unhappy with the situation. You know, you'd be you'd be snarling. You know, it's, um, the squad needs a bit more depth. It needs a freshening up. And, um, you know, the failure to do that, you know, may well cost Tottenham dear. Yeah, no, I, I can't. absolutely. He's a good soldier, isn't he, Pochettino? He yeah. won't win straight back. He's not a he's not a guy that's going to cause internal issues by sort of mouthing off in press conferences. He's not he's not Jose Mourinho. Mm. I can't. I'll go on one of those rants again, Mike, where I just burst into <laughs> tears at the end of it. So just get, let's move on to something else. I mean, you know, it sends a message to future employers. I'm a good boy. I won't rock the boat in public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, let's sort of stretch the imagination somewhat and, and suggest that you're in the shoes of Ed Woodward, Tony. Mm. Would you give Solskjaer the job? No. I think that would be a massive mistake. Uh, I think the parallels with Di Matteo no. are quite clear. And what I'd be doing is I'd be looking and saying to myself, Who's going to be the manager of Manchester United for the next five years? Who is someone we can go forward with who can build build this club? And you know what? You might come to the conclusion that Solskjaer, you'd have to wait till the end of the season. The, the reality is, I don't think it is. There's a lot of good players at United. It's um, not the most balanced squad you've ever seen. But good players sometimes, when they're released from a an oppressive manager, get things done on their own. And sometimes, even with, with managers, they change things. I mean, Abby Redknapp's a classic example. Yep. You know, you, you've seen him at Tottenham. You know, 20 minutes into a game, Tottenham had looked very different in shape to how Abby sent them out. Because, <laughs> you know, they'd, they'd work it out themselves, and United's players have done that. But that'll only take you so far. And it certainly won't... Once you come against or come up against really good teams, you need someone who can basically give you the strategy and tactics that'll, that'll get you through, uh, you know, sort of which will cover up your, your, you know, your vulnerable spots and, and will, will accentuate your, your strengths. And what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, and I, I think um, certainly against Wolves, is Solskjaer, Solskjaer's inability to manage the game, to make changes, to... Mm-hmm. to, to uh, shift the points of attack and to you know strengthen areas where they're coming under pressure so i think i think i'd look for someone with a bit more experience and better credentials mm. but hasn't he earned the right to try and reboot this and look we're in an age of overreaction they've lost two games that happens yeah i, I think he has on the right I, I think what might be important here is the amount of political capital edward wood has to play with because it's very, very difficult not to give him the job. Mm. I agree with Tony completely. I think it's, it, it reeks of the Di Matteos. Like, it's, it's, it's that situation again where you just think, well, 
It's not that we're in a position to discount what he's done, it's just that no one really knows what he is. Because that freeing power that a new manager has is very, very real. But I think what, what happens, for instance, if Woodward says, right, well, we are going to go down the experience route, we're going to bring in a high priest of European football, which usually means a six-month adjustment period. Mm. So every fan, every Man United fan, is going to be coming off a season which has been relatively successful in comparison to what it could have been, and then they're going to go back into transients, essentially flux. And that's a that is going to be that's going to be very difficult for Woodward to manage whilst that comes good, with the knowledge that Solskjaer is out floating again at Mould or wherever he's gone to. Mm. That's a hard sell, I think, as logical as it would be. While we're talking about managerial, potential managerial change, Tony. Chelsea, are we just waiting for the politics to play out? Hmm. Without a doubt. Um, I think uh, Surrey's era there is coming to an end. It's an unmanageable club. I mean, right from the first time they got rid of Mourinho back in 2007, they've downgraded the position of manager and they've, they've felt it was an interchangeable role. Anyone could do it. You know, if you've got, got the right players, anyone can manage. We're seeing the illogical conclusion of that idea and the, the players have become accustomed to not playing for the managers because they understand the manager's got little power as well. With the transfer ban, you know, it's unless it gets overturned, which um, I, I think it probably will ultimately. But even so, it make you, you when you were coming if you were coming into the club, you think to yourself, do I really want this job? You look at the people that chewed up and spat out. And what manager would go there? What manager whose career is on an upward trajectory would go there? Yeah, I agree. Mm. I can't think of one. I noticed, said that Tom Ricketts, who's the owner of the Chicago Cubs, yeah. uh, was at the Chelsea Wolves game. Mm -hmm. There has been talk in, in, the, in the States about them wanting to get into the Premier League. Are we looking at a new suitor? And can you envisage a club or Chelsea without Abramovich? Well, absolutely, because I, I think the era of the Abramovich figure is coming to an end in the sense that um, it's not enough just to be a billionaire. You have to be not only a billionaire, but a billionaire with a plan and the resources to enact that plan. You can't exist now as a, um, a wealthy club who make mistakes, except they're going to make mistakes, and then try and buy your way out of those mistakes, whether that be with new players or redundancy payments. Ricketts is really interesting because he's, um, his time at um, Chicago Cubs, obviously he, he delivered the World Series, which is, you know, sort of gives him um, winsome affection in the city itself, but he was also very adept at kind of manoeuvring around the sort of the, the situation around Wrigley Field, with the construction of kind of facilities for the community as well, which it's a little bit of a um, it's a bit of a leap. But if you think about the situation at Chelsea too, and the, and the, the, the trouble they've had in that area, and the, the need for expansion, there's a there's a synergy there certainly. But I, I think you need to what he, what he seems to represent is ownership in a, a three dimensional sense, like someone that is kind of is going to be a little bit more visible, but has a a strategy beyond writing checks, which I think has been. Once upon a time wasn't a problem for Chelsea, but it's becoming progressively more so as time goes on. I think the sort of figures that have been bandied round uh, for the value of Chelsea pretty unrealistic, you know, more than £2 yeah. billion. And I don't see... With that stadium to construct as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah and um, I think uh, the Americans, when they've, generally, when they've come into the league, have been very astute yeah. on the prices they've paid. So, I mean, I think 
Chelsea's overpriced. Mm. Realistically, is Chelsea's best chance of getting into the Champions League, the Europa League? They've got Slavia Prague and then they're facing the winners of Benfica, Eintracht Frankfurt. That looks doable, doesn't it? It does. I, I put a caveat in there, Mike. Um, that pitch out in Slavia Prague is horrible. I saw their um, their game against Sevilla uh, on Thursday night, and they're, they're a good side, but that is it's like a it's like playing a, a rugby pitch. So they want to be careful with putting all their eggs in that basket. I don't think they're out of the top four race just because I think the teams behind Liverpool and Man City are dropping points all over the place. So I, I don't think they can sign that off. I don't. I wouldn't. Uh, and Eintracht Frankfurt are a good team too. They um, they handled into Milan very very comfortably in the second leg there. So the way Chelsea are playing, I don't think that their path is that easy. Mm. Yeah. Arsenal have got uh, Napoli second leg away from home. Interesting developments yesterday with. Munchi, the, uh, who was expected to go to Arsenal as, as sporting director, opted to go back to Sevilla. Mm -hmm. How much of a blow was that to Emery? Well, I think it's a, a serious blow, really, because uh, obviously they have a relationship and it, it was a Susan and Munchi's record. Is, perhaps it's, it's a big exaggeration but still a good record and you know Arsenal changed the recruitment and then the, the, you know they, they've, they've lost their head of recruitment so they need to fill that um, I, I mean the way Arsenal do things you have to buy in the analytics company and mm -hmm. using you know the stats and Wenger was very very against a lot of the signings they need to sort themselves out in, in some ways, Emery's done better than I expected this year uh, because I expected to, to be a, a bigger meltdown once Wenger left and uh, a Manchester United-style meltdown. Mm -hmm. But it's, um, it's certainly they need to get... I mean, they've, they've lost... The Wenger year ended, and immediately Gazidis leaves. You know, before the year's out, you've lost your head of recruitment. You know, you, there's, something's not quite right there. They need to sort something out. And generally, uh, a well-run club manifests itself on the pitch. What's going on in the boardroom manifests itself on the pitch. And I think that the same thing will happen to Arsenal if it continues to be such a vacuum there. Mm. Let's look at the FA Cup. Great platform now for Wolves and Watford, obviously, yeah. play one another in a semi. They're clubs on a similar trajectory, aren't they? Absolutely. They're, they're, they're the, I'd say, the two most progressive sides in the league at the moment. Um, Wolves, I think, is, is just a, a great story waiting to happen. It's been a little time at, at Molyneux this season, and there's just this great enthusiasm for, for, what's, for what the team is. And also, I mean, they're a good side. Plus, of course, when summer arrives, they've got the resources to become an excellent one. Mm. If you imagine, I don't want to pick any players out because they, they've done so well this season, but if you added a £50 million centre-forward into that side, another centre-half possibly, another midfielder to go with, um, you know, three that are pretty decent as it is, they are credibly a top-four threat. Maybe an outsider for it, but a threat, someone to be taken seriously. And Watford, you know, Watford have done excellently and also they they have the support of probably one of the most intelligent scouting networks in football at the moment and by all account I'm, I'm, I'm no expert on on uh, Spanish football there's a couple of Cucho Hernandez Martinez he's very very good he, yeah he, 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 I read about him in your book actually yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. talking about him as a new Aguero right so and that 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 uh, you know that piques my interest certainly so if you add these players into those teams and you, you see sort of the stability which is starting to exist in both of them, they, they have to be taken seriously. Absolutely. Mm. They were a very streetwise team as well. I saw them on Saturday. 
Oh yeah, yeah, and very, you know, they, they know how to manage a game, they're, they're very clever, and, and mm. how they break up the pattern of the opposition's play, you know, it's, um, I, I, yeah, I think they've got a, they've got a lot of nose, and I think that's um, really important, and, and, and will be, you know, because the, the, there's a lot of teams who are, I mean, Fulham, for example, Fulham just look naive in the extreme, oh, yeah. you know. But you know, when you when you look at the organ, organization and the way they'll they'll squeeze games and kill kill games and wait for the right moment to break, I, th I think that's important. The thing about Wolves is is obviously in the background. There's George Mendes mm. and um, Moutinho for five million, by the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. And so that gives that gives them a huge advantage going forward. Yeah. Um, you know. It, I think there's the likes of Arsenal and United, uh, unless they get their act together, and Chelsea should be very, very scared of Wolves. Don't think they'll be scared of Watford as good and as, as streetwise they are. But Watford will, will, will take points off people left, right, and centre, and and they're still. Mm. And you know, let's, let's look at Nuno as well as a, yeah. as a coach and a manager. He improves players. Oh, really you know, you look smart. at the way. Connor Cody, for instance, has yeah. improved so much that people did say, "Well, why wasn't he in the England squad?" Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd, I'd add Willy Bowley in there as well, like a player that came out of the second league, uh, second division in France. He just looks like, he really looks like a £30 million centre-half. He's, he's been terrific. And the, the, the left-sided fullback, Johnny, he's great too. I, I, I think he's one of the most underappreciated managers in the country because with Wolves, you have, you have Mendes, you have the Chinese money, and so you have the assumption that it's a kind of a blunt force trauma kind of success. It's not not the case at all. They they're a fabulously well constructed side. Oh, you look at Dockers, you know he's yeah, there. absolutely, yeah, absolutely. He's been, he's been exceptional. Yotta as well. Like yeah. this 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 is a, a team full of good players, but a team full of good players who fit together really nicely. Especially at home, they are they're a real spectacle. When when they're when they're on form, when they actually hit the top gear, they're they're a great side to watch. Well, the first time I saw them, um, I thought you know I'd heard so much about Martinho and Neves, yeah. and I thought they you know, were going to be flair players who were getting forward all the time. Functionality to them. They though. sat real yeah. deep, and until mm -hmm. the, until they, they got control of the game, and yeah. then they started getting forward. They were brilliant. Mm. There's a question from Brian, one of the listeners. Why does the FA continue to get it wrong with the FA Cup? VAR in use in some quarterfinals and not in others, thus creating inconsistencies at key stages of the tournament. Got it right, hasn't he? Yeah, I don't have anything to add. Good point, Brian. I mean, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Why, why don't we just stop the question? Was why do the FA get it wrong? Yeah. You've got thirty seconds to tell us. Because the, uh, I'm, I'd swear they're, they're not very bright. It's, um, I think they don't think through the consequences of some of their uh, actions. I thought it was very strange to say that you weren't going to have VR at Swansea because it's not a Premier League club. Well, hang on. Mike, also, this is... This is how, how does no-one see that coming, that problem? Because all it takes is a slight controversy in one of these games and then this conversation starts. It's, uh, mm. it, it's, I have no explanation for that. It's very, very strange. Right. One thing the FA have done well with is the England team and mm. the, the reconnection with the public. You know, you look on Friday sell out at Wembley for the Czech Republic in the in the Euro qualifier. Can that be sustained, the feel good factor? Well certainly with the players they've got, I think it can. I think um I think there's so much ability there. I think there is um lots of young players who have the chance to grow and develop. For me the biggest question is 
can Southgate take them forward? Has he got the the tactical nous rather than the man management? Because yeah. clearly he's got the man management, but has he got the tactical nous to turn this uh, th- this group into World Cup winners? I mean, you know, it's um, you, you know what I felt about them. I've been saying I'd take that squad to the semi-finals. Yeah. I think going to the semi-finals, per. In fact, maybe slightly underachieved because they didn't play that well and he didn't get all the different components uh, in, in the right blends. But I think, I think if I was an England fan, I would be very, very optimistic about the future. Mm. Excuse as well? Oh, absolutely. You know, Mike, the, the depth of talent in those youth squads is extraordinary. I mean, in, in some positions, it's a little bit stockpiled. Perhaps it, it could do with a bit more of a, a broad spread. But the, the level of ability is unlike anything I've seen in my lifetime from an England setup as a whole. Mm. Well, if you look at that under 21 yeah. squad, who's going to come through from that? You've got Callum Hudson Adoy, who I thought made a big impact when he came on uh, for Chelsea yesterday. Phil Foden, I think I saw Aaron Wambasika on Saturday, and I just thought, wow, you know, this is a player. Angus Gunn. As well, I mean, he's a, yeah, he's a really right. fine goalkeeper. Yeah. And James Madison, who really deserved probably well, being I, seen. I'm surprised he never got in this squad, Madison. Um, I'd like to see him play with Harry Kane, yeah. and um, you know, tell tell Harry not to drop deep. You know, get into the box and let Madison work around behind him. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the only the only thing I could say, the only explanation I could offer probably is that um, the the under-21s have a European Championship in three months. I suspect A.D. Boothery wants to keep his squad intact. And, and, and someone like Madison, I, I'm with Tony, I'd, I'd love to see him in England shirt, but I think you, you, at the moment you're saying, right, well, this guy is not going to be a default starter for a senior. Let's keep him in the under-21s until that cycle is over and then let him go. That's probably why James Will-Prowse has been uh, called up this morning, Monday. So, yeah, there's a bit of that. I, I just think it's, 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 it's fascinating. It's kind of... Even below someone like James Madison, you've got a Mason Mount playing at Derby. I know he's been injured recently, but he's a fabulous footballer. Mm. Um, and he's just full of these guys. Declan Rice is in now, and he's just he's the kind of midfielder we haven't had probably for 20 years, someone that can actually play at the base of midfield, not just stop and destroy and tackle. It's just a great time. I mean, um, He already has a look of an 80-cap player to me. Yeah. He's very talented. And, and that was, I mean, probably the area where Southgate struggled yeah. most. The, you know, it's, um, because, uh, you know, you, you look at um, Eric yeah. Dyer, hasn't kicked on like no. I thought he would. And, you know, Dyer and Henderson, it's a bit... It's very, um, uh, it's flat. Yeah, it? it's, lacks it's imagination. Passive. You know, yeah. both of them are good players in their own way. And, you know, when Henderson's got the, the work rate and that, you know, adds a bit of vigour to it. But, the, the, you know, you need a little bit of vision, a little bit of imagination, and that's where he could give. You know, you know, in that World Cup, Tony, when we got to the semi-finals and, and that, that team came up against Rakitic and Modric, you yeah. just sat there thinking, yeah, that's the problem. That's what we don't have. We can have these forwards. We have good centre-halves and full-backs and, and wingers. We don't have those players that will take a risk with the ball and mm. cut lines with it. Mm. It's almost imperceptible, but players are actually beginning to accumulate really good international careers. Yeah. Take Sterling as an example. 47 caps now. Only Henderson, who's got one more, has got more than him in the squad. Now, if he, his career runs its course, he could end up with about 120, 130 caps, couldn't he? Yeah, easily, and you know, and, um, and you think of how many of those caps he's been appreciated. Yeah. Um, very yeah. few of them, yeah. um, but you know, he's—I mean, he, he should, you know, hopefully, if he stays fit, he should get you know a ridiculous number of caps because he's one of the main threats 
that, that England can uh, can produce. I mean, the, the fact is, even when, even during the World Cup, when, and this is where one of my problems with Southgate, Southgate substitutes them. England lost the way because it's allowed the opposition uh, who, who were having to account for Sterling, even if he didn't seem to be having a great game, they were having to double up on him. It's allowed them to release a midfielder and it allowed them to get control and, and, and get on top. And it happens all the time. I mean, Sterling terrifies defenders. And um, so I think, yeah, it, it, he will be crucial if England are going to go and win the World Cup. Right. Long way out. We've agreed that England's future is bright. How bright? Can they win the World Cup in 2022? I could take them to the final. Okay. I think they will win the World Cup in 2026. I think they'll be very, very competitive in 2022. I don't have as much faith in my own manager ability as Tony does. <laughs> but yeah, they'll, they'll be uh, they'll be they'll be a level above where they were. To 2018, of course. That's not faith in my ability. <laughs> it's faith in them. And you know what? And the, and the thing is, you'd have to ask questions of the manager if he doesn't take Yeah, them. I'd agree yeah. with that, absolutely. Well, I, along with many others, took the mickey out of the FA's digital clock, counting down to the 2022 World Cup final. Could England be in it? It's not that far-fetched. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.